Aloha, and welcome to episode number eight of the Public Art Podcast, where we talk story with the artists, community members, project facilitators, small business owners, supporters, and story holders working together to envision Wailuku as a public arts district. Today we're joined by Oahu-based sculptor Sean Brown, who installed his Wailuku public artwork in 1989 entitled Uamau Ke'ea Oka'aina Ikapono, which is the Hawaii state motto and translated as the life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness. Last week, this incredible large-scale marble piece became the backdrop of the unveiling of two small-town big art public artworks, the bits left behind by Adaptations Dance Theater and Return to the Source by muralist Corey Tom. And it felt really important to learn more about the story behind Sean Brown's work, as each of our program's pieces are embedded in a very clear story and sense of place. Sean has created public art for more than 40 years. Born in Hilo, Hawaii, he earned his bachelor's and master's degrees on Oahu and was awarded a Fulbright Fellowship in 1985 enabling him to study with Izamu Naguchi in Japan. For many years, he taught sculpture at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and at Kapiolani Community College. His greatest advice for artists today, Chansom. Please enjoy. Okay, so we are going to jump in. Um, so happy to be meeting you face-to-face, Sean. Thanks for joining the Public Art Podcast. Um, last week, we hosted our 19th small town big art project with your one of your sculptures that you placed at the state judiciary Hoapili Hale courtyard in 1989. And we received lots of questions about what that piece represented, what the story of it was. And a lot of those questions were prompted um, by the current project between Adaptations Dance Theater and Corey Tom, because we were so um, transparent and um, welcoming of conversation about the talk story that took place between Uncle Cliff Naiole and Hokuel Pellegrino that inspired their artworks. So I'd love to just get more information from you today about that sculpture and about being a public artist in general for a lot of folks that are just newly breaking into this vocation and any kind of advice or thoughts or feelings you'd like to share about um, your very long um, history in this work because it's really exciting for a lot of our artists that like I said are, are kind of emerging in that space. So I'd love to start with how long you've been creating public art and perhaps would have been some of your most rewarding pieces? My um, first commission work was dedicated, I think, in the fall of 19, 1983 for the 1001 Bishop Square. And that was the first commission that I executed uh, and then followed by very shortly uh, my first commission with the state of Hawaii uh, and I that was also in 19 in the the winter of 1983 and just as a point of interest the first state commission that I got was actually for a uh, elementary school that I attended as as a kindergartner back in, I guess, around 1959, 1960. So it was a very interesting um, or auspicious beginning for my work for the state. And I've, you know, since 1983, I've, over uh, the decades, have been able to continue getting a number of state commissions, one of which was in 1988 for the Wailuku Judiciary um, complex and I forget what your second question was I guess which um, have there been projects that are most rewarding throughout this 40-year history of creating public artwork the, the there's a number of them that that have been rewarding for different reasons um, you know one that 
comes to my mind is a sculpture that I did for Polymomy Medical Center. It's a representation of a volcano, but it's it's uh, done in a way instead of it erupting with fire, water actually comes out of it. So it's like a waterfall. And you know, it's at a medical center, so uh, you know, there's people that are being treated for amongst other things, life threatening uh, illnesses like cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> I've had people remark to me how uh, soothing for them, both as patients and as physicians and people that work there, how calming. Yeah. The work so receiving, is. So receiving that feedback becomes kind of part of um, that that sense of, of of a rewarding feeling of having a sculpture and a sense of place. Yes, and it's 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 not just um, you know it's somebody seeing it or a number of people are seeing it and then they're reacting to that and not necessarily to people what I've created and so it's yeah. almost like um, you know writing a new book because I kind of see all of my, my sculptures as being either chapters or books, different segments in my life, or, or it could be different segments of uh, my host culture. Um, there's been uh, what I would say significant accomplishments, I feel, in some of the work that I've done with artists in the schools. Uh, I've done one here on Oahu at my, in my elementary school. I think that was my first one. And my last one, I think, was at Kohala Elementary School on the Big Island. Those, you know, they have, um, they're rewarding in different ways. But it's, you know, quite touching to be able to interact with the children. Yeah. And, and they, you know, responding to either the work that I'm doing or the art exercises that I've laid out for them. So there's different kinds of rewards in different ways. Yeah. But what I'm hearing just in those two examples that you shared is part of it is kind of that exchange of feedback. Because I always wonder about public artists and those that I work with, once you put a piece out into the world, you're not you're not really hearing as much feedback as you might if it were a private commission or if it were in a gallery setting where there's, you know, a notebook or, or a mailing list or a gallery manager that's sharing all of those um, those reactions with the artist. And sometimes that mm -hmm. doesn't happen as often in the public realm. Yes, yes. Right on. So earlier this month, um, as we mentioned before, your 1989 sculpture, Uomao Ka'ea o Ka'aina Ikapono, was the site of a 15-minute contemporary dance performance that followed the unveiling of a 1,000-square-foot mural. Um, each of these two pieces were inspired by a recorded conversation between two powerful Hawaiian cultural leaders at different points in their vocations. So I have three questions relating to this um, collaboration. One, we would love to hear the story of this work of public art if you might be willing to share that with me. So uh, I believe there were at least three of us that were invited to uh, compete for the sculpture. Uh, and I decided after researching the name of the courthouse, Hoapili Hale. Uh, I, I started to fasten on to the story of, or the history of that particular person. And from what the re research that I did, he had been appointed a trusted advisor to Kamehameha, but only after his father had uh, passed away. So. My understanding is that Kamehameha had this uh, group of counselors. There were four of them. They were all from uh, Kohala and North Kona. And 
two of these counselors were actually twin brothers. So uh, upon further research, I discovered that the original coat of arms for the Kingdom of Hawaii, which had been uh, designed during the reign of the Third, Kawi Keauli, that, and again, from what I've read, the initial uh, design has the two twin brothers. Uh, this is Ho'opili's father, Kamei Moku, and his twin brother, Kamanawa, who are um, the males that are in the original coat of arms. And Kamei Moku is holding the, the uh, Kahili staff, and Kamanawa is holding the spear or uh, in a rendition, it doesn't quite look like a spear, but just a staff. But, um, you know, there they are flanking the central, um, what I would refer to as also a, sh a shield at the very center. And so you have these two um, twin brothers. So there's sort of a reflection of each other. And that's how I came upon the idea of the cloak forms, the triangular shapes that are on the outside flanking the central circular image. And the central circular image is what I designed as a analogy to, to that central field, which has got like four quarters to it and two of the quarters the lower left and the upper right are have the symbol of the pulo ulu, which is a, uh, a a taboo stick that the Hawaiians would use to denote protection and a place of refuge. So they would use these sticks and lay them outside the entryway or the doorway to the king's house. And they were symbols of protection and, and a place of refuge. And it gets repeated again through that central um, triangular flag, which was a the flag of the ancient Hawaiian chiefs. But there, that flag is also cross. And the flag itself was used also as a symbol of, of taboo and protection. It would also be laying across the front of the king's house, across two spears. So these are indications of protection, refuge, but also it's intermingled with these trusted advisors, royalty, the symbol of the... Um, the court and power of Hawaii. And so what I tried to do was to marry sort of the ancient um, concept of the ali'i or the royalty having responsibility to their people by adjudicating their laws. And it's now moved forward to modern day with the um, Judiciary of the State of Hawaii, uh, taking on that role as as a role of protection. It could be a place of refuge, and what the the uh, courts administer, you know, and a set, certain reverence to it. So that was the the um, seminal idea of trying to recreate the ancient, the uh, original coat of arms and also using tying in through abstraction design um, the Hawaiian cape and cloak uh, which was also considered symbols of royalty and and what the um, the duties of these people that would be wearing these Symbols, including you know your headdress, your mahioli, uh, the kahili, the pulo ulu, 
all these symbols of royalty, but also their their uh, responsibilities. It sounds like a great deal of research and thought went into this piece prior to um, obviously the design or implementation process. And I think I heard you say that you were invited to apply in 88, and I know that sculpture was installed in 89. That's, that's a rather fast timeline, is it not, to have all of this thought and research and to create this enormous, um, incredible I, I think sculpture. I was actually, I think I'm wrong on the date. I think the competition uh, may have started in, as far back as 86 or even 87, but I don't, yeah. it was no later than 87, I think. So I'm wrong on 88. I think 87 would be more accurate or 86. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's, if that's um, more of a standard timeline for a piece of this, of this size and right in of this meaning. Um, so that would have been about three years um, from yes. the time that you were, yeah. And so I just I just um, really respect the amount of thought and process that goes into the creation of each of these pieces and kind of wonder how much time went into the research process before you began, you know, your drawing and design process for that sculpture. You were asking me how much time I put into it. Yeah. Uh, well, I believe that once I, I um, can't think of the right word, but once I settled on the imagery that I was planning to use, basically, the, you know, it's a circle and two triangles, going from there and trying to articulate those forms that. Uh, Team Hawaiian. So um, that was the challenge is trying to figure out how to create something that's, um, you know, three-dimensional, and but actually three pieces that are three-dimensional, make everything work together. Right. So that the planner box, which is what the people running the competition, they're, they're the ones that decided that they wanted something within the confines of that planner box. So that was another concern. And so there's concern not only with height and how it's gonna fit with the building behind of it, but also with the width and how it, um, you know, would act as a counterpoint to the existing surroundings. Um, and I do know with the triangular shapes, the two outside pieces, that uh, I can specifically point to the the stirrup pounder, which I believe, uh, I don't know if it was only specific to Kauai, uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a type of poi pounder that's very unique. And so I, I, I drew upon that. Um, stylization, that design to create the other two pieces. And the central piece, I think, was much more straightforward in that I took the design of the cape, which is a much shorter version of the cloak. The cloak goes all the way down to your ankles. But the cape itself is, is something that um, doesn't go down more than the middle of your back. And so I just fixated on creating a circular image. And it just turns out that way. You, you see, when you look at it from the back, it's the same as it is from the front, right? And so that's the, um, how I came up with the design. Yeah. And so, Sean, how do you feel about sharing space with these new works of art? Um, and I know we haven't released the doc documentary yet about the adaptations, contemporary dance work and Corey's mural, but the dance work happened right there at that space where your sculpture is. 
Um, and Corey's piece was right around the corner, but still the, the celebration of their works of art that were unveiled last week were in that same space. And I wonder if that stirred anything for you. Um, I think, you know, it, like I said earlier in our conversation, um, you know, you have something and it may be static, uh, like my pieces now. I, I, I see it as being more static and, and aged as opposed to or compared to Corey's piece or to the, uh, the modern dance interpretation, but they all have the same uh, thread in that. And what I'm hearing from you is that one, you know, the first piece in some way inspired the other two pieces. And to me, that's, that's very um, common. Uh, and I believe that's how uh, cultures, you know, whether you're trying to refer to the host culture or to contemporary culture of today, there's always going to be this uh, back and forth. So, you know, I think it's, terrific if you can reach back which is kind of like what they were doing and what which is what I do I reach back into my history what I know about my Hawaiian culture and I pull some of that forward so that it's you know reinterpreted or reimagined and it's for other people to then pick up uh, whatever they see in front of them and they may also hear something or just be inspired by looking at it and then they carry um, that impression to to another uh, level. So yeah, great. And so I wonder then you've you've said so much about maybe not what an what an artist statement would have been for your sculpture at, at Hoapili Hale, but certainly the story of that piece. And I wonder what your thoughts are about the artist statement or short sharing stories behind each work of art, because in this um, movement that small town big art is kind of helping to create, but certainly not reinventing, um, the story is the heart of the piece. Um, and we really wanna be as transparent and inclusive as possible. And there have been some discussions amongst our artists and our supporters that this differs quite a bit from gallery-based artwork, which oftentimes represents a very personal moment of inspiration to the artist and leaves the interpretation completely to the spectator. Um, so I wonder how you feel about um, being so forthcoming or transparent and sharing your story as an artist versus allowing that to be completely in the eye of the beholder. You know, there's advantages uh, to both. I think for me, the most important thing is to have it being viewed, uh, whether it's in a gallery situation or as a work of public art, you know, whether it's on a educational campus or in front of a hospital. You know, you're, you're always going to create dialogue, you know, in some way. So um, I think whether it's an exhibition in a, in a private gallery or public artwork, to me, there's, uh, there's no line between the two, mm. in my mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's interesting. I've had some artists, um, opt not to title their works and and struggle a bit with sharing their perspective of what their artwork is specifically because they want to be able to encourage um, participants or people in the community to share what they think and allow that to be part of the artist's intention mm -hmm. themselves so that's why i'm asking you yeah like it, it it does come up and it is a reoccurring theme um, but again for us um, the way we view public art, which is just one through one very specific lens, is that it does need to be co-owned by the people in a community, right? So the stories mm -hmm. come from community members, the memories, the themes. Each artist picks a proverb from Mary Kavena Pukui's Olelo no Eau 
And in this way, we're creating this co-ownership, right? And this ongoing story in the community. So yeah, my question was, if you think that's important and what I'm hearing is there's a time and a place for each side of that, um, that option for the artist. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't like for myself personally, I don't, um, I think the audience can gain a personal uh, understanding or perception of of the work of art, whether it's you know out there in public or uh, in a private setting. Because if I can maybe uh, use an analogy, it's the the show that Imai Kalani Kalahele and I are having at the at the Mac, you know, that's basically a gallery presentation. But um, specifically, the, the work that I've included in that exhibition is all about trying to point out to people, to the audience, um, certain parts of our Hawaiian history so that they in turn can go and explore on their own and create um, their own ending to to that uh, premise that I've set up for them. So, for example, some of the work deals with Hawaiian um, mythology, Hawaiian legends that I thought were specific to Hawaii or to Polynesia, not necessarily a result of European um, you know, Christian tradition. And um, to me, it's just something that I can present out there for people to then take and run with it, whatever they want to do with it. Uh, but to me, just as importantly, uh, creating this body of works that deal with myth mythology and legends is that I, I'm recreating, um, I'm, I'm breathing new life into that legend you know so yeah i think that's beautiful i like how you said that um that you're not necessarily withholding information or or telling a complete story you're sharing a perspective that then inspires um that the looker does their own thinking or maybe research or perpetuation of what you're putting out right. there into the in with the artwork. It's like the beautiful. you know the proverbs, you know, the Olelo no Yao. You can you can read any of the sayings uh and you know, ten different people will come up with a different explanation. It's the same saying, but everybody will interpret it differently. Yeah. And none of it's wrong. Yeah. We say that all the time. Perfect. It's never wrong. Um, I, I wonder how you're feeling about, this is a question I asked um, on our first conversation, that your Uomaoka'ea Oka'aina Ikapono sculpture is also the oldest work of public art in our new self-guided walking tour of uh, public art throughout Wailuku. Um, Sissy Lake Farm at Haleho Ike Ike, the Maui Historical Society, helped to name this app, this new mobile app called Ho'okama Aina, and it outlines a historic tour, a cultural tour, and a public art tour throughout Wailuku. And yours is kind of the first piece on this, this long list of artworks. I'm wondering how it sits with you. Um, should there be a larger public art collection? Where is it appropriate to exhibit public art? How should pieces be distributed in a given community? Just, yeah, your overall impressions on um, public art collections within communities. Well, you know, I, I, I think um, public art is very important because I think uh, it's, you know, it's like um, any other kind of endeavor that a society creates, it's a reflection of that society. So, I mean, it, it would be, 
I couldn't really say that you need like X amount of sculptures within a X amount of square meters. Um, but what the state has, you know, they, they do have a nice footprint where the monies that are generated for construction are set aside for, for artwork for that building. And if not for that building, it's, it's pulled together with monies from other projects to, to, to create public art, uh, maybe in a community that, uh, that does need more, more of it. And I, I do know like with the state, with the artists and residence commissions that they do make a, a, a real effort to get out into the country, so to speak, and where they try and engage um, people that may not have the opportunity to visit you know, the large city of Honolulu or even you know the cities in their island, but to stimulate um, that kind of aesthetic appreciation. So, you know, I think the end result is it's it's all very good and very positive. And I, I just feel very fortunate that I've been able to um, create work that I feel is is very important to me, but also very important to my community uh, because of where I draw from, which is my roots, the roots of my culture, and bring it forward to, uh, you know, make it live, uh, create a living entity. Um, on that note, um, I'm wondering how you think the arts impact neighborhood revitalization. Um, so specifically in Wailuku, we're undergoing um, a rather large capital improvement project here. And one of the ideas that was juggling around prior to launching this public art program was how do we maintain our identity throughout this construction phase, which is going to last several years? Um, how do we ensure that businesses can, these small businesses can stay in place and perhaps we can avoid, you know, drive through you know, large corporations coming through. Um, and we've talked about public art um, helping with cultural education and storytelling or helping with economic growth or helping um, with at-risk youth engagement, preservation of open spaces. Um, as an artist of your caliber, I wonder how you think the arts can impact neighborhood revitalization. Okay, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. <laughs> so when I was a kid, I grew up uh, on uh, homestead, uh, Hawaiian homestead in Hilo. And there was literally no public art. We had a, a craft workshop that was run by our Catholic church. There was a Quonset hut that was manned by one of the church members. And, you know, we would do these um, creating bowls and cups and things out of wood. Uh, and, I, you know, I think it was a way for us to sort of gain a skill. Um, my sisters, on the other hand, all danced hula. And so, which was interesting because, um, the, the people that were teaching the hula would then go out with their hula troops and perform at the hotels. And there weren't a lot of hotels in Hilo. I think there were like two or three, but then they'd also go out to outlying hotels um, up on the Kona side and up to the military camp in the volcano. And so in, in a way it's, you're, you're having, Kula, which is to me a type of art, it's it's being accessed both by the the creators, the people that are in the community, and the uh, people that live in the community, and it's a means for them to to make money, you know, because the hotels I think we're paying them a certain amount of money 
for these performances. So there's that kind of a give and take with how you can take the hula, and this is all a modern hula, the awana, and create this thriving cultural industry because you're still furthering um, the hula in some way through appreciation and, um, you know, one of my sisters actually ended up going to Japan to perform with the hula troupe and then also vacationing in California with some tourists who just invited her up to their, they had like an apple orchard or something in California where she spent a month. So there's, you know, all this give and take of people coming into the community, the community creating something and then something that extends beyond the community. And I do remember there was a state senator named Doc Hill who he created this, they literally called it the Hawaiian village right across from our house. And, and they had like this uh, the little uh, replica of a Hawaiian village with the hale and a couple of canoes, but they also had an adjacent pavilion, a roof on it, no side, but that they could uh, feed the uh, tourists that would come down and, and watch the performance, the hula performances, you know? So that's, you know, that's a, a way for the community to, you know, take something that's theirs with the hula and then go out there and project it and have this interaction with um, your clients, basically, the tourists. And, you know, I don't know what the specifics are with uh, Wailuku, but to me it's kind of the same thing when you're having, say, a show at the um, the MAC or you know, at the other end of the spectrum, a piece like mine or Corey's that uh, is, it's, it's out there. So, you know, the idea of having some sort of a tour for people to plug into is terrific because it also um, allows you to recreate the history of your, your town. Through, yeah. through this app that you're creating, you know, because I think the Bailey House is going to be in it. Oh, yeah. Another thing, so, um, you know, it's like with my sculpture, I'm sure most people that uh, go to the the judiciary don't really know why it's named Hoapili Hali. They yeah. don't, you know, and it would, you know, I wouldn't know unless I researched it, but it turns out that he... He was one of the sons of uh, a son of Kamei Moku. And when his father passed, there was an opening, I guess, for another counselor. And he was appointed counselor by Kamehameha himself. And he actually ended up um, taking possession of his bones when he passed away and secreting them away so that shows you know the importance of his standing with the um his his royal lineage um i i think the the two twin brothers were also um related as uncles to kamehameha himself you know there was a lot of intermarriaging and i'm not gonna pull my hair out trying to figure out who's what, but you know, they they were obviously held in, in high esteem. Uh and that's how they end up, you know, during Kamehameha the Third's reign becoming part of the uh, coat of arms for the Kingdom of Hawaii. Yeah. Beautiful. Um how do you, Sean, find balance between teaching art and creating art? So many of the artists that we work with um, not only want to teach, but need to teach um, kind of to, to support their art making activities and love. And so I know that 
I saw in your bio, and we spoke a little bit about you being a UH teacher as well as doing artists in the schools work, um, maybe in some of the elementary or inter intermediate schools. Is there advice you can give for finding that balance? Yes. So when I uh, graduated from college, I got my BA in studio art from the University of Redlands, and I came back to Hawaii and I decided with a mentor's great advice that I wanted to live here in Hawaii. So then I, you know, the first decision was, okay, I'm going to get my master's from the University of Hawaii at Manoa in sculpture. So then when I started there, as I was going through the program, I realized that People that ended up getting their masters in sculpture once they graduated from the program they disappeared they literally disappeared and they had to go out and find work yeah. <laughs> so i decided midway through my uh, courses that i needed to do a number of things one was to set myself apart from everybody else in sculpture. So I decided I was going to have to learn how to work stone and also learn how to use metal, uh, specifically bronze, because both stone and bronze and stainless steel hold up very well uh, outside, outdoors. They're perfect outdoor um, sculpture material. Brilliant. So that was the first thing. The second thing was I needed a place to do my work and so by teaching part-time once I graduated as a lecturer which I did for I think 19 years at UH Manoa and 20, 20 plus years at Kapilani Community College that afforded me the studio space that I needed because Casting is very expensive, and the UH was the only place in town that where you could get things cast. So I ended up running the casting program for almost 20 years. So, and the fact that I was just teaching part time—that was another thing that I realized. I, I looked around, I looked at all the tenured professors, and they were um, fat cats. Not not physically fat, but they were, you know, they didn't have a problem putting food on the table. And and yeah. I, I believe as a result of that, they they lost their desire to create art uh, because it was a, a true passion of theirs. And so I, I knew that if I wanted to continue making art, there's no way I could become a tenured professor. No way. Because um, historically, you know, I could see all these examples around me. And so um, that's what I would suggest, you know, if you're, if you're um, really set, you know, particularly in sculpture, you need to get your master's. Um, if you want to live in Hawaii, I would suggest getting it here so that you start to uh, create your network that you're going to need. Um, Teach part time at at you know one of the community colleges or at Manoa, so that you you're still part of that network. You have some money coming in, and marry a wife that's going to support you. <laughs> <laughs> that's the perfect advice. <laughs> Good. No, man. it's true. She ended up working for the city and county, and so. Yeah. 30 plus years, she, she was always the one that had the, um, the pay wasn't that great, but the benefits uh, are terrific once you retire. Uh, and so myself, on the other hand, hand to mouth because I'm a sculptor and because I was just teaching part-time, I never built up, um, you know, that fat cat syndrome thing with, with the state. So, you know, my, my hands are in my wife's hands now. <laughs> yes. 
perfect. I met my husband working for the state of Hawaii and as the starving artist slash arts administrator, I'm very happy to have his state benefits. <laughs> so I can totally see see eye to eye with you on that one. Fine. <laughs> um, so in, a, in addition to that, you just started right off on some advice. I wonder if you have additional advice for those seeking a career specifically in public art. Making public art? Uh, a career in public art, yeah. So again, a lot of folks that apply for small town big art, um, you know, are are more accustomed to working on private commissions or in a gallery setting. And so some examples I've heard is, you know, be ready to pivot, be prepared to work with, you know, engineers or county officials, um, be really ready to change your budget at the drop of a pin, right? So I guess how would working in a vocation in the public art realm look really different from perhaps a commission or gallery realm? Um, well, I think the main thing I think for any artist starting out is that you need to produce a body of work. So yeah. if I'm, what I'm hearing from you correctly, um, you're eliciting uh, proposals from people to, to create public art. Um, so my advice would be, uh, you know, there's a saying when I was a kid, they just say chansom. I don't know yeah. if you've ever heard that, chansom. It's like you, you when you, you're going out and you're not sure if you're going to make it in that the swell is like eight to 12 feet and you jump in with your surfboard and you go chansom, right? That's all I could say is you just, you got to get uh, dirty in the sense that uh, you shouldn't be afraid to work, uh, but that it's an opportunity. And I always felt when I was first starting out that applying for exhibitions, you know, whether they were uh, juried exhibitions or invitations that you just, you, you take them all on. And um, that's where you're learning how to find out what you're all about and what, what you care about. And, you know, if, if creating public art is really something that you want to grab onto and hold, you know, it, it's not for everybody. Yep. Yep. Chansom. Perfect. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you just have any closing thoughts or ideas. Um, yeah, I know that you had mentioned that you worked with Corey in the past and you know him and his work. Um, I don't know anything you'd like to share about that work or working in public art or this piece at Hoapili Hale or anything in general that you'd like to share. Well, you know, he and I had a conversation uh, and it, it revolved around me talking about the term volumetric opposition, volumetric opposition. And it was a term used by a design professor here at UH Manoa who was a terrific mentor for me. And uh, when he would look at Hawaiian art, particularly the, the, the figurative sculpture, he would talk about volumetric opposition. So you have a form that goes off at one angle and then it repeats itself uh, in reverse. And then it, you know, you can do it horizontal or you can do it vertical, you can do it diagonally, whatever, but it's a repetition of that uh, volumetric opposition. And that's what I saw in Corey's um, is semicircular art arcs with the uh, fish that are yep. uh, repeating that. And it's just a very, at least in my mind, a very powerful visual uh, statement to be able to, you know, latch on to that concept. And I'm sure that's what he was doing. Yeah. But, you know, when I was, he was asking me about it and I was talking to him about it, I was pointing out other examples of volumetric opposition. And you certainly see it in 
Uh, there's a famous kappa print, and it it looks like um, an undulating U, for lack of a better description. Um, but it's 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 that thing. It's volumetric opposition, and and you see it uh, much more apparent in like the triangular shapes of the kappa patterns. But they're doing the same thing. They're they go off in one direction and then they repeat itself as a sort of like a mirror image. And, you know, you're re-emphasizing basically the same shape over and over again. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting concept. Um, and I enjoy uh, Corey's energy and his passion because um, there's not a lot of people like him out there that I've met. I agree. And um, so, you know, I kind of see, you know, the I'm at sort of at the last chapters of my life, but Corey's sort of at the beginning or the middle chapters of his life. So he's got all this opportunity to continue uh, adding to his life story. Yeah. And he's got a nice Hawaiian name. So. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good kid. We're very, very blessed to have worked with him and with Adaptations Dance Theater. And what I, one thing that I love to point out about this piece that he created, which is called Return to the Source, is that a lot of his work that we've studied up until now has um, straight angular edges. And this one was a lot more fluid. And I think that came from two things, having spoken with him. One is because um, we're talking about O'opu swimming through the river. And oh, the right. other is because um, he was working with dancers and he said kind of hearing their thoughts and, and kind of seeing their movements as they were speaking about the choreography of their piece inspired him to work more with fluid rounded edges. So I found that fascinating. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. I think this has been a really interesting conversation. I'm happy that we'll get to share this um, on the webpage with Corey and Adaptations piece so that people can learn more about that particular sculpture. And then I know we'll be seeing you very soon for your Maui Arts and Cultural Center exhibit. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing that exhibit and learning even more about your work. Thank you.